Good morning. My name is Jared. I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church, and I just want to say thank you guys for giving me an opportunity. It's always a, an honor and a privilege to be able to open God's Word and just share truth from it. And so I'm excited this morning. If you have your Bible with you, uh, you can go ahead and open it to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be reading from there this morning. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, says this, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Pray with me one more time. Father, this morning we ask that, uh, God, your word would be alive in our hearts, that, Father, your spirit would move in this room. God, that you could use, God, just the, your word that, God, it would go out in power and that you would bring conviction to sin that exists in our lives, that, God, we could live lives that are honoring and glorifying to you. And, God, I pray that this is just a process of sanctification this morning, that we could become more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I know I'm probably, I might be alone in this. Probably not. There, this is, there's a lot of people in here. Is anybody else a Harry Potter fan? I'm, I'm a Harry Potter fan. Uh, Y'all can make fun of me for that later if you want. I've read the books. I've seen the movies. I have a Hogwarts t-shirt, actually. Um, it's, I don't know. I just, somehow I got into Harry Potter. Um, Harry Potter is, is a story uh, about a little boy, um, and he's, he's, a, he's an orphan. He starts out in the beginning of the story. He's an orphan. He lives with his aunt and uncle. It's not a very nice living situation for him. Uh, he basically lives under the stairs, and he's mistreated and abused by his aunt and uncle, and he, he doesn't live a very happy life. And so one day, he turns 11 years old, and he starts getting these letters, which are delivered by owls, and these letters are inviting Harry to start school at this, this place that he's never heard of, um, it's called Hogwarts, and it's the uh, school for wizards and witches. And he doesn't know anything about it because his aunt and uncle, they didn't raise him knowing anything about this, this wizarding world that exists. And so Harry has no clue what's going on. And then one day, this, this large fellow named Hagrid, he's the, the groundskeeper at Hogwarts, he comes to visit Harry because he's coming to take him to school. And he says just a few simple words to Harry. He realizes that Harry has no idea that, that he's even a wizard. He says, you're a wizard, Harry. And for Harry, this changes everything about his life. So he was, in a, in a, he was stuck in just a, a no-good situation, living with his aunt and uncle. He was informed that his parents died when he was a baby in a car crash. He goes on to learn that there's something so much bigger going on in this world, in this world and in his life than what he's been told. And th this is a moment when everything changes for Harry. And so today we're, we're looking at Matthew, we're looking at his life, and this is, this is a, a Harry Potter moment for Matthew. 
This, you, you could probably say Harry had a, a Matthew moment in his life, but this is kind of a Harry Potter moment. Everything changes for Matthew. And first, a, a little background. Matthew is a tax collector, and uh, so he was kind of like the modern-day IRS. Any big IRS fans in here? Nobody, nobody loves the IRS. Yeah, yeah, there's some accounting people in here that love the IRS. Um, the IRS, he's kind of the modern-day IRS in a sense. He collects taxes from the people. So just a little background to, to help us know culturally, what did, what did it really mean for Matthew to be a tax collector during this time period? Uh, first of all, many tax collectors actually got their job. Uh, they bought it from the government. So the government, if you wanted to be a tax collector, you, the government would put out these bids, and you could bid to actually be a tax collector. Uh, so people pursued these positions to be a tax collector. They actually bought them from the government. And their job was many times to, to collect tax up to a certain dollar amount. And anything that they could collect over that dollar amount, they could actually keep uh, essentially as commissioned so they could put it in their own pockets. Um, they were really despised by everybody. Nobody liked tax collectors because they were not very honest. So this system where they could collect money up to a certain amount and give that to the government, then anything above that they could just keep uh, and keep in their own pocket. It really wasn't a very good system if you want an honest system in place. So they were despised by other Jews. They, uh, Matthew would have been known as a traitor. So he's a, he's a Jew who was hired by the Roman government who had conquered the Jews to collect taxes from the Jews. So nobody would have really liked Matthew. They were known for not being completely honest. Also, people didn't know how much tax they were even supposed to pay. So this is before newspapers, this is before radio, television, internet, Twitter, all that fun stuff. Uh, and they had no right of appeal. There was no avenue for them to, to even figure out hey, this tax collector is not being fair with me. There was no, no avenue of appeals that they could go around that tax collector and go to somebody else in the government. So there wasn't really a lot, of, a lot of system in place for those tax collectors to actually be honest. So you could cross a bridge one day, and there might be a tax collector who's taking a toll on that bridge, and he might say, hey, it's $4 to cross the bridge. And then you come back across it the next day, he could say, yeah, tax went up, it's $5 today. There's, there's no way to, there was no way to stop that. There was no system for that. He could just take that extra dollar and put it in his pocket. And so it was not known as an honest profession. And on top of all of that, uh, tax laws back then really weren't that much less complicated than they are today. Uh, so there were, three, there were three great stated taxes that everyone knew what they were. So there was a ground tax. A uh, man had to pay one-tenth of his grain and one-fifth of his fruit and vine to the government, either in cash or in kind. There was an income tax, so you had to pay 1% of a man's income. And there was also a poll tax, which had to be paid uh, by every male from age 14 to 65 and every female from the age of 12 to 65. So those were the three great stated taxes that everyone was familiar with. But then there were other taxes, too, that uh, had a little more gray area in them. And this is primarily the areas when the tax collectors would take advantage of people. So there was a, there was a duty or a tax of 25 to 12.5% on all goods that were imported and exported. So this is probably the type of tax collector that Matthew was. Uh, he would sit at the entrance to, to the region, and he would collect taxes as goods are brought into and brought out of that region. There was a tax to travel on main roads, uh, to cross bridges, to enter marketplaces and towns or harbors. There was a tax on pack animals. There was a tax on wheels and an axle tax on carts. 
there was a purchase tax on goods that were bought and sold. Uh, there were actually certain commodities that the government had complete monopolies and control over, and there was a tax on those. And again, oftentimes the people who collected those taxes were from that same province that they collected taxes in. So everyone would have been familiar with or known Matthew. He probably grew up in that area and then got a job as a tax collector and started collecting taxes from people he went to school with or people he grew up with or his neighbors or his friends. Near universally hated, notoriously dishonest, they made extra income. They would actually take bribes from wealthy people who wanted to avoid paying taxes. They would just take bribes from them and just stick it in their own pocket. So if a wealthy person owed $100 on taxes, they would come to the tax collector and say, hey, I'll slip you 50. Let's, let's act like I don't owe any taxes. They say, deal, put it in his pocket, done. Universally disliked. And on top of all of that, if you didn't have enough reason to already dislike Matthew or tax collectors, Jews were also known as extreme nationalists, uh, very proud of their Jewish heritage. They didn't believe in paying taxes to a king because God was their king. And they, had been, they had been taken over by this Roman government who is suddenly saying, no, I'm your king, you pay me taxes. So a Jewish, uh, under Jewish law, as a tax collector, he would have been uh, disbarred from synagogues. So he could not go to the synagogue and worship with other Jews as a tax collector. He was lumped in there with what, what Leviticus 20:25 20, says are things that are unclean. He, he was forbidden to actually be a witness in any case. So if you can't trust him uh, with finances and money, then how can you trust him in any type of legal case or legal settlement? Basically, robbers, murderers, and tax collectors were kind of lumped into the same group. Near universally despised outside of his own little circle of other tax collectors or his own circle of other, other lawbreakers. So when Jesus called Matthew, when he, when he came to Matthew's table, he looked at Matthew, he said, follow me, two really simple words. He called a man that everyone would have hated. Jesus said, follow me. Matthew got up from his table and he followed Jesus. And this is a, is a very simple verse. And it's, it's easy to look at this passage and see this verse as kind of an introduction uh, to this whole passage. But I don't want us to read over this verse because there's, there's a lot happening here when Matthew gets up and follows Jesus. And it shows Jesus' mercy and his sanctification in the life of Matthew, as well as just simply the power of Jesus' word when he says two simple words, follow me. Luke's gospel, if you read this account in the gospel of Luke, he actually adds a, a little extra detail. Luke's gospel says it like this. It says, when Jesus said, follow me, Luke adds, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. You see, collecting taxes, it was not going to win you any popularity contest. Nobody really liked you. But one thing it was as a job, it was very lucrative. Uh, you can make a lot of money if you were a tax collector. That's why the government would actually put it out to bid and people would purchase the right to be a tax collector. And so in some circles, if you value money, then you wanted to be a tax collector because you didn't care what people thought about you. You just wanted to line your own pockets. Luke's gospel says that Matthew left everything to follow him. And the passage doesn't refer to, to Matthew asking any questions or wanting any more details. He simply got up and he followed. Why would Matthew leave? Why would Matthew leave 
the situation that he was in, where, where he was making money, he was doing well for himself, what would cause a man with just two simple words of Jesus coming up to him and saying, follow me, what would cause a man to get up and walk away from everything that he knew about life and follow Jesus? What causes that? The truth is this. In Jesus Christ, we find a wealth that surpasses anything we might have to leave in order to follow Jesus. We find a wealth that is greater. Anything that this world can offer, there's a wealth that we find in Jesus that is greater than anything we have to leave behind in order to follow him. So this is what, this is what Paul writes about in Romans 2.4. He says it's the kindness of God that leads his children to repentance. It is God's kindness. We are drawn away from the world and we are drawn to Jesus because he is greater than everything that we repent from. He is greater than than everything that we passionately pursue before we knew Christ. Jesus is greater than that. And God's kindness and his granting us repentance allows us to turn away from that just like it did in the life of Matthew. He's able to, to stand up and follow Jesus and turn away from his previous life. It's the power of God to grant Matthew repentance, to call him to a new life. It's God's mercy being poured out on Matthew as he moves from from darkness to light and from death to life. And you see this throughout Scripture. This isn't an experience that's just unique to Matthew. You see it all throughout Scripture. And this... uh, This first point is about the transformation that the call of Jesus brings. That the the call of Jesus transforms our life. So you see it also in the life of Moses. Let's look at the life of Moses real quick. Just quick background on Moses. Moses was an Israelite who lived in Egypt during the time that the Israelites were actually enslaved in Egypt. And the Israelites were growing in number, and Pharaoh got a little nervous because there were so many Israelites. He thought, what's going to happen? What if they rise up against us? Their numbers are so great they could overtake us. And so he comes up with some creative ways uh, to try to diminish the number of Israelites that are living in Egypt. One of those is, he says, hey, let's just kill every every male that's that's born. If, If an Israelite has a child and it's a male, let's kill it. If it's a female, let it live. And this way, we'll try to control the population somewhat. Well, Moses' mother is able to have Moses in secret, and she can keep him for about three months to herself, but she realizes it's going to be too hard to keep him a secret forever. And so she does the only thing that she knows to do. She takes Moses, and she puts him in a basket, and she, she sends him down the river. And she sends him down the river, and then she, she sends Moses' sister to follow him and, and see what happens. And Moses is rescued out of that river. He's rescued by none other than Pharaoh's daughter. And so Moses, again, is an Israelite. Well, all of the Israelites are in slavery, and he is raised as a prince of Egypt, as the son of the daughter of Pharaoh. Hebrews 11, 24 through 26. I'm going to turn there quickly and read this passage. Hebrews 11. This is known as the faith chapter, uh, probably a chapter that uh, most of you are familiar with. But Hebrews eleven twenty four through 26 says this. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, 
choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses had everything. Everything. I mean, Moses, he just literally had to speak the words, and if it was at all possible to make those words happen, it would happen. That's the position Moses was in. He had all of the wealth of Israel at his disposal. Every lust that his heart could desire, he had it. He had everything. I mean, he basically had what we call the American dream. Everything you could ever want at your fingertips. He had comfort. He had wealth. He had food. He had anything you could want. What would cause him to walk away from that? What would cause him to... to, to turn away from his old life and to turn towards his new life, a new life that included being kicked out of Egypt, that included turning away from his his position of royalty as a prince of Egypt. Again, the words of Hebrews 11, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing to be mistreated with the people of God. Verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. He considered Jesus greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. This echoes really what we see in the New Testament with the words of Paul, Philippians 3.8. He says, indeed, I count everything a loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul had a similar story, didn't he? Paul's in a position where, where he, had, he had everything. He was a, what he called himself a, a Jew of Jews. I mean, he was on top of his game in his little world. He had everything he could ever want. And then on the road to Damascus, Jesus came and revealed who he truly was. And suddenly, Paul saw in Jesus a greater wealth than anything that he could ever turn away from. Do we see Jesus that way? Is that how we see Jesus? Is he greater than any reward that this world can offer? Do we see Jesus in that light? And it's not only turning away from, from sinful lifestyles. You know, it's, it's easy to, to look at lifestyles uh, like Matthew, where, you know, of course, you come to, if you live a, a life of just cheating people and you come to know Christ, like you, you should turn away from that. But sometimes this same truth applies in a lot more subtle ways. Sometimes it's not just turning away from sinful lifestyles, it's turning away from other good things too. So sometimes it's, it's family and it's careers. It's relationships. It, it can be your, your husband or your wife that you place on the throne of your heart and you refuse to turn away from that to follow Christ. It can be a, a fiancé or a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a relationship that we refuse to turn away from because, because we don't see Jesus as being more valuable than that relationship. Do you see Jesus as being more valuable than any good or sinful thing that this world ever has to offer? Can we turn away from good to pursue greater? You know, we're reminded 
of, uh, of another story from Matthew. Matthew 19 is the story that's uh, it's known as the rich young ruler. Matthew 19, verses 16 through 22. I'll share this with you quickly. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, same two words, come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. You see, this, this, this rich young ruler, he followed all the right rules, right? Like he knew Old Testament law. He knew what he was supposed to do, what he was not supposed to do. His only fault was his heart was on his wealth. And scripture never explicitly says that there's necessarily anything wrong with wealth, but Jesus exposes the sin that's in this young man's heart when he says, you have to leave your wealth and follow me. And scripture says that man went away sad because he had great wealth. His heart and his passion was his wealth and it wasn't Jesus. And Jesus's words and his invitation to follow me was not more appealing to this man than his wealth. Sometimes we give up something or someone that we love in order to get something better. And that's Jesus. That's the, the transforming power in the call of Jesus on our lives. So the call of Jesus is transformative. It transforms our lives. We see that in the life of Matthew. The call of Jesus is also shared with others. It's shared with others. Read verse 10. It says, And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came, and they were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, Matthew's gospel doesn't, doesn't tell us this specific information, but Luke's gospel, if you read again the same account in Luke's gospel, it mentions that this is actually Matthew's house that they're at. Uh, so Matthew um, throws this party. So after responding to Jesus' call, Matthew throws a party at his house. He invites Jesus, as well as a, a host of what Scripture says, a host of other sinners. So these were likely, uh, because Matthew, again, was, was universally despised by uh, the general population, these were likely, these sinners that Scripture mentions, these were likely Matthew's kind of inner circle. So these would have been the other people that Matthew hung out with at the time. And so you see Matthew leaves the lifestyle, but he doesn't leave the relationships. He turns away from the lifestyle. He doesn't leave the relationships. He had good news to share, right? I mean, Matthew finally found something that's, that's greater than this profession that he's had as a tax collector. He has good news to share. He doesn't just want to walk away from everyone. He invites all of his friends over with Jesus and with his disciples. He says, come, come meet this Jesus, this Jesus who is greater than my profession as a tax collector. He's changed my life. Everybody come to my house. I'm going to throw a party. I'm going to throw a feast and we're going to, we're going to talk and meet Jesus. He leaves the lifestyle, not the relationships. What do you do with good news? What do we do? When we have good news, what do we do with it? Um, 
I'm, I'm just kind of reminded, Caitlin and I are, of course, expecting a baby. And so uh, September 21st is, is the due date. But of course, that's always, that's always fun news to share, right? Uh, when you're expecting a child, that's fun news to share. And so you, you, know, you, you initially take the pregnancy test, and you know, a lot of times it's just you and your spouse. And uh, so you're, you're excited in that moment. And then the first thing you want to do is you want to tell you know, close family and friends. And then the, the days go on, and that, that circle gets ever wider as you start to share the news. And people are excited for you, and you're excited to share the news. And, um, th- of course, there's Facebook, right? Like, that's like the culmination of pregnancy announcements. Like, you, you got to put it on Facebook. You're not really pregnant until it goes on Facebook somewhere. I don't know if that tells you about the culture we live in, but it's got to go on Facebook at some point. Um, and so we're excited to share good news. And then, you know, the baby's born, and we're, like, trying to snap these cell phone pictures, like, in the delivery room of this, let's just be honest, this, this ugly, wet thing. And we're, like, posting that to Facebook. We're like, that's my baby! It's not pretty, but that's our, that's our baby. Like we're excited to share. It's good news because a baby was born, and so we're excited to share that news, and people are excited to receive that news because it's good news. Is, is the call of Jesus in our life, is that something that we love to share? Is it something that, that we look for opportunities to share? And Matthew, he didn't only look for opportunities to share. He created opportunities. He said, hey, I'm going to throw a party at my house, and I want everybody to come, all of my friends to come, and I want them to meet Jesus too. Do we not only look for opportunities, are we intentional to create those opportunities as well? How are we intentional to create those opportunities? The call of Jesus is shared with others. It's shared with others. You see that in the life of Matthew. You see that in the life of of believers throughout Scripture that we share good news. We share the good news of Jesus with those around us. So the call of Jesus transforms. The call of Jesus is shared with others. And the call of Jesus demands mercy. The call of Jesus demands mercy. Back in Matthew 9, this passage, we finish it with verses 11 through 13. says, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." What is Jesus saying here? Because on on surface level, it almost sounds like Jesus is saying that that the Pharisees didn't didn't really need Jesus. He says, I I came to call uh, the sick, not the healthy. Is that what Jesus is saying? Is he he saying that they were were right and they were holy? No, because he's not talking about about their soul. He's not talking about their, their spiritual standing. In their own eyes, they were not sinners. In the Pharisees' own eyes, they would walk into a, into a, into a, a room like that, the, the party that Matthew's throwing, and they would say, I, I, can't, I can't sit at this table. I can't sit with these, with these sinners. They were far too religious to even be in that space. And in their own eyes, they were far too holy. They were far too holy. 
And so Jesus is saying that, that they don't need a physician because they don't need any healing. They've already healed themselves with, with their law and with their duty and their own minds. They don't, they don't see a need for a Savior. They don't see their own sin. And so Jesus is basically saying to them, you, you go, you live that life. I, I, I leave you in that life. You have no part with me unless you, can, unless you can see your need for me. You have no part with me. In verse 13, the end of verse 13, he says, I, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And that, uh, that Greek word that's used there for the word call is a word called kalian. And it's actually the, the technical Greek word for inviting a guest to a house or over for a meal. And so you're, you're uh, reminded there's somewhat of a parallel here. And I'm not going to turn there and, and read this passage, but there's somewhat of a parallel to if you're familiar with the parable of the great feast. The parable of the great feast. This is in Matthew 22, 1 through 10, if you want to go there and read this. But you remember there was a, there was a feast throne and all the, the invited guests, they refused their invitation. Uh, they weren't interested in coming. And so um, they went out and they just gathered in all the, all the lame and all the beggars and the blind who were just out on the streets. And they were gathered together to sit at the table of the king. So a translation for this passage is Jesus kind of speaking to the Pharisees saying, when you make a feast, you invite the orthodox. You invite just the, the pious self-righteous who have no need for a savior. When I make a feast, I invite those who are most conscious of their sin. Those whose need of God is the greatest. Those who, who see and have an understanding that their need of God is so great. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So Jesus in this passage, he actually quotes Hosea 6, 6. In Hosea 6, 6, if you turn back and read it, it says, for, for I desired steadfast love, mercy, and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. So do, do you see what, what's happening here? Jesus is telling the Pharisees, hey, this, this old way of doing things, this old way of just trying to follow the law and earn your salvation, all of that's changing. All of that was never right to begin with, and I'm here to tell you that it's, that it's changing. That this is the end of sacrifice, that, that Jesus is the final sacrifice. That this old way of, of following the law for the sake of following the law, that that's not what I desire. I desire mercy and the knowledge of who God is. Jesus says, go, learn what this means. In other words, Jesus is, is essentially saying, hey, you Pharisees, you, you love the law so much. Well, you need to go and you need to, you need to figure out what this means because it's talking about me. It's talking about me. You judge by the law. You judge by your sight. You judge by what you think is right. You judge by what you believe is truth. But you are so far from the truth. And even today, many religious people, we participate in Christian rituals. Yet our hearts don't love God. And our hearts don't seek Him or know Him. And we practice 
empty rituals. And the truth is God cares more about our heart's love for him than the things we do in his name. God cares more about our heart's love for him than the things that we do in his name. We cannot substitute religious traditions for a relationship. You cannot substitute those things. It's like in Mark 7, 6, the words of Jesus, he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are so far from me. They say the right things and they do the right things, but their hearts are so far gone, so far in the wrong place. Also reminded of Matthew chapter 7. This is uh, in some ways a, a very frightening piece of scripture. Matthew 7 verses 21 through 23. Jesus speaking, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, or on the day that people stand before him, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Do you know him? It's not about following rules. If you look at that passage in Matthew 7, they say, did we not do this and this and this in your name? We did all these things in your name, Jesus. And he says, I, I never knew you. You can do all the right things. You can follow all the right laws. But unless you know him, unless there's a relationship there, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of energy and effort. Do you know him? Because this call is not about following rules. It's about God's mercy being poured out on your life. And in mercy, he grants you repentance and the right to be sons and daughters in his kingdom. Do you know him? The call of Jesus is a call that demands mercy. It demands that mercy is, is poured out on your life and granting you repentance. And then that that mercy is extended through your life to the world around you. So in conclusion here, when we look at this passage, we see what the call of Jesus means in our life. And we examine ourselves. We're, we're reminded of the, the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 13.5. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? When you examine your own life, what, what do you see? When we look at the call of Jesus in the life of Matthew, we look at how it transformed his life, and he, he turned away from old things, and he turned towards the new, which was a life in Christ. He turned away from his, his sinful passions, and he saw Jesus as being something far greater than anything this world could offer you also see a call to, to sharing, sharing who Jesus is and what he's done. And a call to mercy, embracing mercy from God. I'm going to end with this. This is a, this is a quote from, uh, by C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. And he says this, he says, To have faith in Christ means, of course, trying to do all that he says. There would be no sense in saying you trusted a person if you would not take his advice. 
Thus, if you have really handed yourself over to him, it must follow that you are trying to obey him, but trying in a new way, a less worried way, not not doing these things in order to be saved, but because he has begun to save you already, not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside of you. As we go through our life and as we, we go through our, our weeks and our days and our, just our daily motions, do we go through with that faint gleam of heaven inside of us, that faint gleam that, that desires Jesus more than it desires things of this world? that pursues Jesus harder than we pursue a career or harder than we pursue a relationship or harder than we pursue anything this world can offer? Is Jesus greater than all of that? Can we, can we look at the mirror of Scripture and can we look at the life of, of Moses and Matthew and Paul and, and see how they turned away from all of these things and turned toward God and had a heart to know Him? And can we also say, I, I know God like that. I know God in a way that that I would turn away from anything else and follow hard after him. Has Jesus come to you like he came to Matthew and locked eyes with you and said those two words, you follow me, you follow me, you follow me. And in that moment, did you have that that transforming Harry Potter moment (laughs) when you just, you realize that this changes everything. This changes everything. Like Jesus truly is greater than all of this world. So I'm going to leave us with that challenge this morning to to go and and look into Scripture and allow Scripture to be that mirror that James talks about that mirrors and reflects truth back into our own lives. And do you do you know him? Do you know him? I'm going to ask the band to, to come back up and We're going to pray and finish up this morning. Father, we are grateful for your call on our life. God, we are grateful that, God, we were were lost in our sin. God, we were lost in living life for our own pursuits and our own pleasure and our our own story. But Jesus, you came to us and you said those same two words that you said to Matthew. You said, follow me. And God, in that moment, you granted us repentance. And God, you allowed us to to see you for who you truly are. And God, you are so much greater than this world. You're so much greater than other relationships. You're so much greater than other passions and other pursuits and things that we waste our life on. And so, God, I pray this morning that God, your spirit would just use this passage in Matthew, that God, you would bring conviction to our hearts, that God, we'd be able to, to answer that question honestly. God, do we know you? And do we see you as being greater God, than the temptations that this world has to offer. And so, God, when we, when we choose you, it's not just this, this life of, 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 of turning away from, from things that, that we really want, but you know, because the Bible says so, we're not going to do it. But, God, we see it as, as following hard after you because you are worth more. God, like the, like the life of Moses, that you are far greater than all the treasures and values of Egypt. 
Father, may we see you in that light. And if we don't see you that way, then Jesus, I pray that you would come and just like with Matthew, that you would utter those words, follow me, and that you would open our eyes, God, to see you that way. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.